Welcome back to Lovers. I'm Chelsea Beck. This is season four of Raw Material, an arts and culture podcast from SFMOMA. This season, we're talking about the co-mingling of art and sex. They're two of the most powerful three-letter words in the English language, and they also have a deep-rooted connection to each other. Some artists consciously choose to engage this connection. They find space and mindfulness in their lives for art to influence sex and for sex to influence art. Susan Sontag wrote, If only I could feel about sex as I do about writing, that I'm the vehicle, the medium, the instrument of some force beyond myself. Suze, lovers feels you. So in the previous episode, you met the artist Naylan Blake. Here's a refresher. Naylan's sexual interests and gender expressions have developed alongside their art practice. Each one informs the other, and sometimes the lines between the two blur. The question I ask myself a lot is, if something is going on in my life, then why isn't it in my work? If it's not in my work, then why not? I think creative people get some of their best ideas by viewing their everyday lived experience through the lens of art. And you know what a lot of people, creative or not, are preoccupied with in their everyday life? Sex. Whether we want to or not, whether we're having it or not, who, how, and why we fuck is a profound expression of who we are. That's why in the fall of 1997, when my high school boyfriend earnestly said that he wished he could major in sex when he went to college next year, I didn't laugh him out of the room, and I thought about it. It's pretty ridiculous. I also didn't think he meant it in a panty-chasing, frat-boy-gone-wild kind of way. As we lay naked on his narrow mattress surrounded by Coke bottles of his urine, yeah, that's right. We were in high school, and our brains were still developing. And the bathroom was down the hall. It it made perfect sense at the time. And and we were too busy having sex. Definitely not good sex. But that was kind of besides the point. For our purposes, the fact that we were doing all of this stuff to each other's bodies was pretty awesome, just on its own. The magic of that initial feeling of physical freedom and acceptance was intoxicating. How were we expected to do or think about anything else? Our nakedness, our fluids, our private space. We weren't even in love, but our bodily closeness felt profound. Kissing, licking, sucking, friction, action, and rest. It's feelings like these the world makes hard to hold on to. But some artists discover ways to reveal these fleeting moments first by recognizing them in their own lives, and then finding ways to communicate them more broadly, even ones as silly and dumb-sounding as wanting to major in sex, even dumber ones sometimes. The only way that I've gotten to where I am is because I've seen other artists who were willing to have that kind of fearlessness about what they do, about their interests. I mean, I really believe strongly that 
our job here is to provide examples for each other, you know, examples for how to get through this world that really does not want to acknowledge us how we are. That's what any of us are, are here to do. And so when we're not doing that, uh, it seems kind of pointless to me. One of the examples that Nayland looked to when forming their ideas about how to get through a world intent on changing, marginalizing, or not recognizing people for who they are was feminism. In the 1960s and 70s, second wave feminist ideas were penetrating, uh, uh, oh, excuse me, pegging the cisgendered, hetero, white, male dominated art world. Apron. Chopper. Like in her 1975 video, Semiotics of the Kitchen, which still cracks me up every time I see it, Martha Rosler performs deadpan demonstrations of every kitchen utensil alphabetically. Her violent, jerky movements, even when applied to an egg beater, conjure castration fantasies rather than domestic expertise. Or from the same year, Senga Nengudi's RSVP sculptures, made from combinations of stretched, knotted, and dangling pantyhose in a variety of skin tones, transforming a material that symbolizes traditional femininity into one whose extreme physical manipulation mirrors the stretched, sagging, contorted grace of a woman's body as it ages. I think that the real impact that feminist thinking had on, certainly on me, was that it gave me a way to think about materials, uh, gave me a way to think about how to relate materials from my daily life to a kind of political uh, position. These materials can also be immaterial like the everyday shitstorm women encounter in their daily lives. Racism, sexism, body shaming, slut shaming, violence, harassment, and some good stuff too. Pleasure, love, intimacy, cats. The body can be the site, the canvas, and the instrument by which to explore and document these intangible forces. Feminist artists have carved out space to reflect upon and reclaim authority over their individual and collective traumas, and also cats. One of the most erotic and sexually engaged of these artists, whose badass genius ahead of her timeness, don't give a fuckness, I'm going to show a room full of macho art bros just how tender a moment of glimpsing a cock covered in period blood can be-ness is Carolee Schneeman. The vagina has a mind. The vagina is smart. It is alive. It is not, according to Lacan, an absence. It is not, according to Freud, an orgasmic site of transference where clitoral orgasm has to become vaginal, or contrarily, vaginal orgasm has to become clitoral. When the fact for me, is that both are active and alive and speaking. Yeah, that's Carolee describing what her performance called Interior Scroll from 1975 is about. 
What she did was paint a few strokes on her face and body to accentuate her contours, strike a few poses as if she was nude modeling, and then she began to extract the scroll from her vagina, inch by inch, reading a text on the scroll to a room full of mostly women artists about what kind of treatment to expect from a world that simultaneously revered and reviled them. If you've seen stills documenting the performance, you haven't forgotten them. I recently read this incredible profile on Carolee by the writer Maggie Nelson. Maggie's just as razor sharp and essentially personal as Carolee, articulating desire and how it activates the body and mind. In her story, she writes about a botched barroom reenactment of Carolee's work, Interior Scroll. The amateur performer fumbles to read from the moist paper and struggling to keep it intact as it emerges from her vagina, she fails to finish Carolee's act. I guess this is a lot harder than I thought, she apologizes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Carolee makes it look so easy. And I think that's one of the things that made Carolee's work so underrecognized for the first 25 years of her career. People enjoy seeing women struggle. It's validating for them. But the images documenting Carolee's performance never seemed easy to me. When I first saw them in some art history survey book many years ago, I crossed my legs tightly under the folding table at which I was sitting. I realized how uncomfortable and disconnected I was with my own, as Carolee says, vulvic space. Or as Alana from Broad City says, nature's pocket. How could anyone think it was easy to use your vagina like a slow-moving paper towel dispenser while reading a forthright message about personal artistic rejection? Seeing these photos of a naked woman pulling a paper scroll out of her vagina was like viewing a still from a David Cronenberg movie, glimpsing something grotesque, two opposing forces, half in, half out, bodily vulnerable, but ideologically forceful, a shocking image of protest. I was grossed out and moved. Carolee has a talent for exposing the body, her body, as a vessel, taking the form down to its studs. It, it can be disorienting the way Carolee recalibrates our systems of beauty and ugliness. She says she's had to push her body away from a conventionalizing history. You can't see me, but I'm using emphatic air quotes right now. And she worked her conventional beauty, aware of her youth, her whiteness, her lithe body. But once she got people's attention, she wasn't going to affirm their distorted vision of eroticism. She has a body that, as she says, is not conflicted about its pleasures. But the problem wasn't Carolee. It was everyone else's tortured notions about her body and its pleasures. The body is always, in my culture, purient or arousing, or it's in a context of uh, male either desire or disgust. If I didn't have an appealing body to work with, it wouldn't have entered my culture at all. It would have been completely ignored or dismissed. But because it had this ambiguous possibility of relating to idealized nudes in the history of art, all of which were depicted by male artists, it was pushing and trying to displace that proportion of authority. You remember the vulva caves from the first episode, right? 
while Carolee was channeling those ancient vulvas. She was summoning their sacred erotic wisdom. Through oppressive sexual power structures, women have been disconnected from their bodies, and Carolee was looking back and reaching in, deep in. Part of my aesthetic oh, determination was against pop art and the vitiation of the female so that she was turned into an obsessive icon, as always, but this time uh, spray-painted formulation as if she was a kind of machinery, uh, an idealized, sharp-edged machinery that had no real viscera, no... Uh, there was no vulvic sexual energy. It was all through some sort of phobic idealization. One of the things that made the reception of Carolee's work from this period so tricky is that it not only threatened a lot of men, it also made some feminists uncomfortable. Carolee's friend and sometime collaborator, the dancer Yvonne Rayner, would tell her that she made sexuality too easy. Easy. Why is that word so difficult when it's about vulvas and sex? Fifty years later, women who flaunt their sexuality, especially in heterosexual contexts, are still accused of exhibitionism and male-centered thinking. Their feminism is questioned inversely proportionate to their hemline, especially for women of color. Carolee is not shy about her desire for men or their desire for her. Her experimental sex film, made from 1964 to 67, called Fuses, is teeming with reciprocal desire. Shot over three consecutive years as she and her boyfriend, James Tenney, pass the camera back and forth, the collage and painted film, its very materiality, is supposed to capture the energy and rhythm of fucking. Balls rise and fall. Butt cheeks clench. I've watched the film a bunch of times, and I still can't tell what exactly is going on during certain sequences, other than bodies and their joyful magnetism to other bodies. One particular body part that routinely breaks through the abstraction is James Tenney's penis. For a film representing a heterosexual couple having sex, the penis is presented here in a really matter-of-fact way. It's not heroic or even insistent. For those of us who have ever been in loving, safe, equitable, and respectful relationships with men, it's a cock we know, but rarely see in art or film. Maggie Nelson writes, Carolee insisted then and insists now on female heterosexual self-knowledge in a world that continues to treat self-knowledgeable heterosexual women as a kind of oxymoron, as if there's always something self-compromising or self-denigrating about female heterosexual desire. Back to me, Chelsea. Despite efforts from contemporary sex-positive feminists who have worked hard to reclaim the word slut and promoted ideas of ethical promiscuity and extolled the values of sex work, the gulf between being a good woman and having indiscreet sex with men, lots of men, remains vast. And heterocoupledom, as it's the case in Fuses, 
presents yet another still extant sexual tension. In a world that so often seems like it's exploding with despicable men hell-bent on making the world explode, it seems almost mythical to claim the existence of a good man, which, as Carolee says repeatedly, James Tenney was. I would dare say without James, Carolee would not have made fuses. It's so weird to me that there's anything that could still be radical about heterosexual desire. And yet, here we are, still. Kitch, the couple's cat, whose image recurs spliced amongst the naked fun, is actually the only one who seems quite unimpressed by all the fucking. Kitch seems to say, with their wise kitty eyes, it's fucking, they're in love. Yes, blowjobs can be beautiful and unburdened by the hostile attitudes and vulgarities of the world that exists beyond this bedroom. That's what Kitch's eyes say to me. Fuses had a long life of being confused with pornography because in my culture there was no sensuousness and especially depicted or evolved by a female artist that wasn't confused with pornography. Those were our erotic um, iconographies at the time. I was reading Alain de Baton's book, How to Think More About Sex. Not because I need to think more about sex. I think about it all the time, but because I also like reading about it. And he raises a point in the chapter about pornography that makes a lot of sense to me. Stay with me here. It's about to get weird. Skittles is our safe word, just in case. The Virgin Mary? Yeah, Jesus' mom. I'm not Christian, P.S. She sometimes looks kind of sexy, right? Debaton says there's a reason for that. He writes, Christian artists were affirming that at selected moments, sexuality could be invited to promote a project of edification. If viewers were to be persuaded that Mary had been one of the noblest human beings who ever lived, it might help if she was also pictured as having been, in the most subliminal and delicate of ways, rather alluring sexually. So what De Baton is saying here is that artists like Botticelli made Mary look sexy in order to subliminally attract people to the beliefs and moral codes of the Christian faith. In other words, sex sells. We know that, right? But it usually sells us crap, like cigarettes, vodka, or all-inclusive vacation packages. But what if sex sold us good stuff? What if pornography was good for us? What if it showed the best in humanity rather than the pulverized dregs? Sometimes I love the pulverized dregs, but they make me feel bad. What if it left us feeling fresh and uplifted rather than demoralized and empty? Debaton writes, ideally, it would excite our lust in contexts that also presented other elevated sides of human nature, in which people were being witty, for instance, or showing kindness, or working hard, or being clever, so that our sexual excitement could bleed into and enhance our respect for these other elements of the good life. 
Maybe that's one reason I like watching porn scenes set in nature. It leaves me feeling fresh and exhilarated, like I went for a hike. Essentially, de Botton is describing what Carolee did in Fuses. She shows the intensity, pleasure, and tenderness that's exchanged in passionate, equitable sex. There is no dominant body or gaze. Even through the formal structure and pacing of the work, it's erotic start to finish. Both the film and flesh are sensual. And this form, this good life pornography, I'll call it, it doesn't have to be two good-looking white people having heterosex in a sun-dappled bedroom in upstate New York. In fact, I think we should give that plotline a long rest. Perhaps the power of pornographic titillation could be used to foster compassion or respect instead of fetishization of the othered body. The gift that kinky people have to give to the rest of the world is the knowledge that sex is complicated and dangerous and requires a bunch of conversation in order for it to be kind of rewarding. Everybody else just gets the rhetoric that, oh, no, it's natural. You should automatically know how to do it. And if you're not satisfied by it, there's nothing you can do because it's natural. It should just automatically feel good. So it's like the fact that kinky people have evolved the tools to ask for what they want and negotiate for it is actually something that puts them in a position to be able to, you know, help out, for lack of a better term, vanilla people. So back to 1997 again. And what it would be like if you could major in sex. Well, that would mean being kinky in a certain sense. As Carolee knows, sex deserves more thoughtful attention than it gets. And if we all dared to start thinking seriously, rigorously, about the sex we could have, the sex we are having, that we deserve to have, this one-size-fits-most homogenous sex-is-like-pizza-or-riding-a-bike mentality would fade. We'd all have our kinks, and we'd know how to advocate for them, respectfully. A vocabulary of pleasure would emerge, and the fleeting profundities of sex could linger longer. Just like art relies on discourse, context, experimentation, and research, so does sex and sexuality. Neither practice benefits from a limited scope of possibility. In the next episode of Lovers, we'll read some red-hot love letters and explore some artists' unconventional relationships that made space and provided inspiration for creative growth. Thanks for spending time with me. I'm Chelsea Beck. This is Season 4 of Raw Material. Most of the music you've heard throughout the episode is by Annie Rossi. Interviews heard in this episode come from The Armory Show, The New School, The Brooklyn Museum, The New Museum, and Art Forum. Subscribe to Raw Material wherever you find podcasts. That way you won't miss a single episode. And follow us on Instagram at Raw Material Podcast for episode updates and behind-the-scenes shots of what we're up to. See you next time.